Hello and welcome to The Good Council, the podcast of the World Future Council. In each episode, we'll highlight current challenges and policy solutions, and we'll also take you on a journey of inspiring stories. Listen in to another of our intergenerational dialogues from around the globe. Hello, my name is Reina. I'm a 17-year-old climate and child rights activist from Germany. And today I'm speaking to Dr. Auma Obama. Thank you for being here, first of all. Um, Thank you for having me. Um, Dr. Auma Obama is a Kenyan sociologist, journalist, author, and speaker. And she's a very powerful activist who supports many projects in the east of Africa and who has successfully created her own foundation called Sautiku and she's also a counselor at the World Future Council. Thank you for being here. Yes, thank you for having me. Um, so we are speaking together in, in Hamburg today. How do you like the city and how do you feel? I, I actually like Hamburg a lot, especially when the sun shines it's, as it's doing now. It can be a bit uh, kind of dreary when it's raining, but yeah. usually when I've been here, luckily the sun has been shining. And it's a beautiful city, beautiful buildings, the lovely waters of the Elsa. So, yes, I do love Hamburg. I think then you are a very lucky person because it rains quite often here. Yes, I actually am lucky. The sunshine comes with you. I bring the sunshine (laughs) with me, that's true, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, So let's not waste any of our precious time and get started right right away. Um, You grew up in Nairobi in Kenya as one of five siblings and you started your education at a boarding school. Mm -hmm. How was it growing up in Nairobi and in the Luo community? Well, I, like you said, I grew up in Nairobi, which is quite diverse. And uh, the Luo community was my family because otherwise Kenya has over 40 different uh, ethnic groups. Mm -hmm. So we grew up with very many different people from different ethnic backgrounds, Kikuyu, Luo, Luya. Um, yeah, and in the family, yes, it was a Lua family, although saying that my stepmother was American, so we we're already multicultural within the family. And the interesting thing about my growing up was that I was the only girl, so among boys, which made my, my upbringing quite interesting because I often heard, you can't do this, you can't do that because you're a girl, or you must do this, you must do that because you're a girl. And that was at first quite confusing, and then I was a little bit rebellious, so I would say, why? Why do I have to do this because I'm a girl? Why can't I do this because I'm a girl? So my family had a little bit of trouble with me on that front because I would always kind of resist being put into a box. Um, What was your favorite thing about growing up in Kenya? My favorite thing about growing up in Kenya was the fact that um, I grew up with a lot of space and a lot of time and a lot of friends to play with. So there was really a balance between growing up and going to school and also playing. We really were able to go out. It was kind of like, I call it a, a Heidi existence, you know, from the Swiss Alps, where I would be out in the morning and come back in the evening just before it got dark, and only because I'd get in trouble for being out, <laughs> because we really played. I really loved my childhood. We got a lot of time to play. We played traditional games with five stones. We played skipping. We played football. We went exploring in the caves near where we lived. So was really full of adventure and discovery and really just exploring the world as a child and I really love that and I, I think I was privileged to have that because many children don't have that anymore mm-hmm. because of the urbanization and also especially in Europe because many children grew up in apartments so I'm, I know that I was blessed to have that in my childhood. 
Yeah, that sounds lovely. Um, you mentioned your education and also Europe. So after you finished your school in Kenya, you moved to Germany um, with a scholarship to study here in Saarbrücken in Heidelberg and in Berlin. So why did you choose Germany for your studies? And is there something you find particularly interesting about the German culture? Uh, Germany was sort of, it was almost, it was in a coincidence initially because when I was in high school, mm -hmm. they offered German as a course. And I had kind of um, missed a chance at French because I didn't pay attention enough. And, you know, I don't know how it works here, but the system in Kenya was such that you had to get really good grades to do languages. And I think I wasn't paying attention too much when it came to French. And I got the opportunity just before I finished high school, the two years before I finished high school, to jump in from the side and do a language. And this was German. And we had a really great German teacher who... We explored, just like I was saying in my childhood, we were only four students, so we explored the German language, we had exhibition visits to Goethe, and you know, we, I learned about Asterix and Obelix through German, and that's how I say I learned my German. So we had so much fun learning the language, and it was really, really uh, a great time for me, and I discovered German literature. So I started reading a lot of German literature, because that also helped with learning the German language. And yeah, and then I thought, well, now that I've finished high school, I did want to go abroad because I wanted to kind of like have more space to spread my wings, to find myself and my own identity, if you want. And I felt restricted because I told you, like, as a girl at home, I was constantly being told what to do and what not to do. And I wanted my own space. So I said, I want to study abroad. I don't want to stay at home. And I started looking for scholarships. And obviously, because I had German as a background, it made sense to um, try and a scholarship in a German-speaking country and at the same time I was interested in German literature and studying about the German culture and I was lucky enough to get a scholarship so I ended up in Germany like you said in Saarbrücken to learn the language properly you know to sharpen up on the language because it wasn't as good as I thought it was when I got here and then I did my master's in Heidelberg and my doctorate in Bayreuth before I then went to Berlin to study oh. at the film school so I did a lot of learning. I was really what they call in German an ewige Studentin, which is like a <laughs> lifelong student, and I still am. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned that the, you studied in film school in Berlin. What else was your focus, your study focus? I think through all of what I did, be it uh, studying in Heidelberg or learning the language in, in Saarbrücken or even in Bayreuth and, and, then find, and then finding the film school, what really drives me is communication and telling stories. Mm -hmm. And I was always looking for a way to be able to tell my story and tell the story of the African continent and then tell general people's story to make people connect, to interact with each other, understand each other. For me, it was really, really important. I dealt a lot with the idea of being different. Being different is nothing to be afraid of. Being different is actually, uh, it enriches your life. Diversity is something that we need to strive for and it's an opportunity to learn. It's an opportunity to grow. It's an opportunity to enrich yourself and your mm. surroundings. So I think that's what always drove me, whether I was trying to do it through public speaking, whether I was trying to do it through teaching, whether I was trying to do it through making films and telling stories or writing books. It was always the motivation behind what I did. Communication and exchange and integration uh, and still at the same time celebrating our differences. Um, I can imagine that that might have been difficult for you moving to Germany as a young woman. Do you want to share um, about that? Well, I was just a little bit older than you. I was 19 when I decided to leave. And it was interesting because when I was trying to get my scholarship, because I was the only girl and I was very close to my father, 
I thought that my father wouldn't let me leave. Mm-hmm. I had this impression that oh he won't he had decided my life what I'm going to do with it and he's going to stop me from going because that was my own decision. I looked for my scholarship by myself. So I actually left without letting him know. So I kind of wow. snuck out of the country. I was there. I kind of like <laughs> ran away of sorts. My mom knew but you know she didn't tell him. I she was sworn to secrecy. And my father only found out one side which Germany. So for me it was an adventure from beginning to the end mm-hmm. in that I left without everybody knowing I was going it was quite unconventional so i started off my life in germany kind of like fighting the fight for my rights and i think <laughs> i kept that fight up till today <laughs> um so you lived in germany and also in the uk for a few years right and now you have returned to kenya yes. where you also helped to set up um the sports for social change network yes. which um helps to introduce girls in particular to sports as a mm-hmm. means of improving their social situation. Mm -hmm. Why is it especially girls' rights that you are passionate about? I think I'm passionate about the rights of all young people. That is definitely, I I tend not to discriminate, but Mm -hmm. the focus on the girls is really because we don't want them to be left behind. Yes. The tendency for girls is that if you have a situation where an initiative has been created or activities are happening that involve boys and girls, the girls will always take one step back and let the boys go ahead. And the boys will take the position. We know it in life. Mm. You're a young woman, you'll experience it much more. I've experienced it quite a bit. Because men are not shy, whether they're competent or not, they're not shy about taking the lead. And what we're trying to do is make the girls also not shy about taking the lead. Be, you know, be be brave. Just, you know, try your luck. You know, be out there, be upfront. And that's what we try to do. And that's why in the Sports for Social Change Network that we created at the time, it is about promoting this to make girls also start using sport just like boys do, just like men do, to improve their confidence, to make them have more self-esteem, and to realize that being a girl is not a limitation. Being a woman is not a limitation. Mm. It's just a fact of life. Before you're a woman, before you're a girl, you're a human being, and as human beings, we're equal. So that's what I was trying to promote, and that's what the whole uh, program was about. So do you think that the sports really helped the girls to feel empowered? Do you... Like from experience, did you notice a change? It does, definitely. I'll give you an example of one organization that I work with and I still work with up to today. It's Hodi, called Hodi. Mm-hmm. It's in the northern part of Kenya, Masabit. The Horn of Africa Development Initiative is the full name of the organization. It's run by a lady called, lady called Fatima. And she wears the whole Muslim attire, you know, head, head covered. I actually have never even seen Fatima's hair, to be honest. And we've known each other for over almost 10 years. Um, And she started this initiative because it was all about, there's a lot of conflict in the area, ethnic conflict, and she was trying to prevent the conflict because young people were dying, they were killing each other. And she started an organization that is called uh, Shoot to Score, Not Mm -hmm. to Kill. And initially she started with boys only, but she's a young woman. She's a woman, and a Muslim woman at that. Mm. It was already, it was frowned upon then, and then she went one step further, further and, in, and also included girls. So girls were now playing football in this community that is very Muslim, very religious, and run by a woman, an organization run by a woman. And we supported her, uh, Fatma and accompanied her because she's the one who deserves the, the you know all the the praise for what she achieved i mm-hmm. didn't achieve it for her i just created spaces to enable her to have a platform 
And those are the things we did. So these girls now were playing football. They yes. actually came with us to Germany. We did an exchange program. They went to Russia during the um, Olympics to represent you know, their communities. So the girls are being exposed to what normally they would never be exposed to. That gives you so much confidence. That tells you you're worth something. You're more than just going to be the wife of or the mother of. You are a person in your own right. And these are things that I, 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 I experienced. That's just one example mm. of many organizations that we worked with in Kenya and in East Africa that were working to promote sports for girls, for change, social change, in order to let them realize that they also have a place in the in society and a responsibility, and they must also be active participants of what happens in their lives. So those are the sort of things that we, we did at the time. That sounds very impressive. Um, thank you. Um, and a few years after that, in 2010, you started your own foundation, Sautiku. What does Sautiku mean and why did you start the foundation? Sautiku means powerful voices. And I started the foundation because actually um, I worked for a while with international mm -hmm. organizations, Sports for Social Change. And one of the problems I always had was that many organizations, not just this one, are driven, are donor driven in the sense that they're funds driven. So an activity can be done, a program, a project, and it will be lasting maybe three years, five years, but this is because of the funding that is available. Mm -hmm. And very many times, the funding is available for that period, and you work with the young people, you work with the local team, and as soon as the funds are finished, the whole project just stops. It's like, to me, falling off the edge of a cliff. And this really disturbed me because we were working with children, and you're working with a 10-year-old. If the project is only a three-year-long three project, then the child is 13 when you fit, when the project then stops, then what happens mm -hmm. to this child if the child is from the slums? You have not actually even scratched the surface of their life. You may have made a small dent, but you haven't actually made that much of an impression. And they go back into the slums and they fall into a bigger slum, apart from being slum, in no pun intended, because now they've tasted the possibilities of being appreciated, of moving forward, of being active, all these things, and suddenly there's nothing there. So they actually go backwards and fall into a situation that is even more helpless and more hopeless. Mm -hmm. And this disturbed me a lot, because even a five-year program, that 10-year-old is only a 15-year-old, not even old enough to even go and do an apprenticeship somewhere, or even learn a, a trade somewhere, because they should still be in school. And this disturbed me a lot, but it's very hard to change big organizations and the way they work. It's, for me, less personal, and even the fundraising is less personal. It's very distant. Yes. It's project-based. Like I said, project and funds-based and not individual-based and not beneficiary-based, in my opinion. So I was struggling with this. So parallel to working within this international organization, I would pick up these young people and start collecting them and, and working with them around my own things that I was doing. And actually, in the end, I said, well, if I'm already doing so much on the side on my own to keep these young people still active, to keep an eye on them and, and sort of try and keep the project alive, like kind of like a skeleton type of support for them, why don't I just do my own thing? Mm -hmm. And that's and also another motivation was the fact that I wanted to work in the rural area, which at that time, fewer organizations work in the rural area because the rural young, rural young person, the rural child, in with regards to being supported, um, in a project-based situation whereby you assist them to improve their lives, there are very few organizations and they are disadvantaged. So I wanted, especially in my own community where there's a mm -hmm. lot of um, uh, poverty and a lot of uh, 
a false sense of not being able to look after your own life, not being able to cope financially, financial deprivation based on ignorance and not knowing how to work with locally available resources. So I saw a, a, a gap that I felt needed to be filled. Mm -hmm. Also because with this, I wanted to also show that programs have to be run in such a way that at the forefront where the beneficiary is, they must never notice that there's no money. There must always be continuity. If you struggle in the back, struggle in the back, looking for funds, whatever, that is the problem of the operations. That is the problem of yes. the organization. But the beneficiary must, especially with children, it must be continuous. Mm -hmm. And they must always be able to access the services that you're giving. So the fundraising has to be done differently and it has to be rigorous and it has to be sustainable and long-term. And we actually managed to uh, make this happen at Saotikun. So the foundation works in such a way that the beneficiaries stay with us over the years. They grew up with us. But in the mm -hmm. background, we have a system whereby we're constantly fundraising. And we have a system whereby we try to fundraise for unrestricted funds so that the program always continues. This is not project-based. We call it ongoing program activities. Mm -hmm. It is program-based and not just project-based. We do have restricted funding projects, but our core work is with the ongoing programs that go on all the time. And the young people have sports. The young people have drama they have art activities they have tuition they have working in the uh, the gardens because we're agricultural mm -hmm. they have many different activities that they do ongoing that are not just based on one project and it doesn't end after three years and then they we have to send them home we never send our children home that sounds amazing mm. how many children are in the program currently we have in our on our books or in our books we have about 500 mm -hmm. because we've been around for over wow. 10 years and what happens is that because they grow up, they go to Nairobi or they go to university and they're not always there. Mm -hmm. So active participants at South we have about 250. But we always say once a South young person, always a South young person. Mm -hmm. So in the holidays, they come back and they take part in activities. When they're older, they become interns with us. Some of them have, them have been employed by us. So it's, there's a lot of continuity. So you see the same faces again and again and again. Sure. I forgot to mention that the parents are very strongly involved. So mm -hmm. we have the children involved and then we have the parents because you can't work. I say you can't go into somebody's home, work with their children, not involve them because then you're, you're mm -hmm. actually violating their space. So what we do is we get the parents involved, but you have to be a parent. You have to have a child with us. So we have programs for the parents and the children participate in those programs, whether it's creating a kitchen garden or at present what we're doing is building a energy saver hut that involves a stove attached so they start not cutting down the trees and, and use less wood. So we do all these projects, but the kids, children are always involved so that they learn from what we do and participate in creating those uh, spaces and those initiatives that we do. But the parents are there so that the parents open doors and make it possible. So we create together with the parents a platform for the children to improve their lives by doing different activities, be it in economic um, empowerment, be it mm -hmm. in personality development, be it in education and training, or you know just uh, motivational uh, activities that have to do with uh, skills, life skills. So we have, a, and with the parents we have, we call them households, because mm -hmm. with the parent comes a household. We work with about 200 households. I love that it seems <laughs> like a very sustainable model. It's a family, it's mm. a family, yeah. Um, so talking a bit more about the World Future Council, um, the VFC tries to identify and disseminate good policies in order to pass on a healthy and sustainable planet to current and future generations. And you are one of the counselors. Yes. Um, what does it mean to you to be a counselor? It means a lot to me. I was very honored when I was asked. 
I've been around a while, so <laughs> I've been a counselor for a bit, so maybe I am doing something right. <laughs> and um, I think the most important thing is what you said about policies. Trying to influence and celebrate, first celebrate good policy, influence policy that is not so good to align with what it needs to happen to ensure that future generations have a future. And for me, that's very important. I work with children. My foundation is a children's foundation, basically. So all of what happens at the World Future Council is helping my work, supporting my work, promoting my work. So to be part of it is the most natural thing for me. And I think we managed to achieve quite a bit. We've managed to celebrate and highlight very many good policies that um, not only work well for children and young people, but work well in general for communities for countries and for our world at large. So I think we need a lot more publicity, a lot more people involved, a lot more visibility, and I hope that I'm able to, to give us that mm -hmm. in order to let people know the great work that we're doing at the World Future Council. Um, within the WFC, you have been the co-chair of the Rights of Children and Youth Commission. Um, are there any synergies between the work at the World Future Council in this area and you work at the Saudi Kiel Foundation. I think I think one of my biggest takeaways from being part of the World Future Council is uh, the focus on children's rights. And it's actually quite a challenge to to teach children about their rights in a way that it really uh, is clear to them that they have a right to have rights, especially in our part of the world, especially in the rural community. And that's one of the things that I'm constantly reminded that I have to do more of because I'm in the World Future Council and because I co-chair the Children's Rights Commission. And this is something that is a work in progress, very exciting, but just getting children to go back to... One of the things that we want to try and do is get back to civic education because it was taken out of the schools. And this is very unfortunate because I think it was done almost in all schools all over the world that they got rid of civic education, which is the basis for democracy knowing about, being informed about how your country functions, how government functions your country, is a basic right. That is the very first thing you must know because if you're not informed about this, you, can't, you cannot make a judgment call on, on, on who are the right people to be in charge of your life, mm -hmm. in charge of your, your, your welfare, your well-being. And I think that's something that the Children's Rights Commission works towards um, making possible that children become aware not only just aware we are kind of like the custodians of making sure that it's 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 adhered to and taken care of children's rights but i think also we need to go a step further and do much much more with regards to how children themselves start understanding what it means knowing the connection between what i do in my life and what other people do and what is uh due me as a child and where are my limitations as a child and where other people take over. I think many young people, many children don't know that. And we're working towards making that happen. We've already awarded policies that make sure that that happens, that children are aware. Especially like in Zanzibar, when we gave the award uh, to Zanzibar for their children's courts, the courts working in integration with children to give them their rights. Uh, these are the sort of things that, that actually motivate me mm. and excite me about being part of Uh, the commission because I know that I see it works and it can be done and it can be done on a larger scale it can be done with government and that is really for me very very positive and it means that the work being done at the World Future Council has relevance 
Um, earlier this year, the WFC started or launched the Youth Present Forum, which I'm also a part of. Mm -hmm. And I feel like in our society in general, we have been seeing more youth-led initiatives. Mm -hmm. And one of these, which has also gained increasingly more recognition, is Fridays for Future. Mm -hmm. um, this is a model that I think is biggest in Western countries. Do you mm -hmm. think it is also a model that can be implemented all around mm -hmm. the world? I think first about Youth Present, I'm very excited about mm -hmm. it because I think the light that was kindled that became Youth Present was kindled when we were in, in uh, Egypt when we had our an annual general meeting in, uh, at SECOM. Mm -hmm. And I remember there were quite a few young people helping on the sidelines and they were of course listening to our conversations and how we were talking about how we want to, you know, look after the future of young people. And it came out in those discussions from the young people, hey, you're all talking about us, but where are we? Can we talk for ourselves? It was really quite interesting. So it was immediately decided, okay, let you guys get a group together and present what you think should happen. And from that now, uh, we now have the youth present and it's, it's wonderful to see that it's happening. It's wonderful to see that even as you interview us, we're having an interaction with each other. That is for me key. Mm -hmm. And I think it's all very well for young people to go out and demonstrate, to have a voice, have their opinion, but I think it cannot be to the exclusion of the older generation. That is something that for me is actually destined not to succeed. And this is why even at South Korea when we work, we work with young people, we call ourselves a, a children's organization, a children's foundation, but we do not work without the parents. Because at the end of the day, the parents sign on the dotted line. And that applies to all young people who are doing whatever they're doing out there, whether they demonstrate, whether they're active like yourself. At the end of the day, your parents sign on the dotted line, so long as you're children. And this is something children must learn to respect. And I sound like I'm not being PC, but really I think it's important to know this. So as much as I admire the movements, as mm -hmm. much as I admire Fridays for Future, the energy, the, the, the courage, the motivation, the the passion that goes with all the movements that young people are at the moment involved in. I want to remind young people that what they're doing, and I don't say it without respect, is not new. It was done. Every generation has had a movement. But the problem with most of the movements, why they fail, is because they leave out the older generation. And what I would like to see, be it Fridays for Futures, future, be it Youth Present, be it any other organization, your organization, is that a discourse, a conversation happens with the older generation and together we make change happen. So all these things have to happen in the home, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And that's why I, have, I look at it with a little bit of skepticism because I say it's very easy to join a movement. It's very easy to go out there and march and carry a banner. But for me, it's even easier to do it at home because if we all did it, the world would be a much, much better place. And we take care of things. Do you recycle at home as you try and change the world and, and, and you know, save the oceans and the seas? You know, are you recycling your plastic? Are you wearing new clothes every time because a new trend is coming? Or are you keeping those jeans and wearing them for five years and say, okay, I'll, I'll continue to wear this because I don't want to go and shop again. Consume, consume, consume. Mm -hmm. You know, shop till you drop. So all these things are part of it. They're part of making sure that we have a better world to live in. And I think the discussion has to go in that direction where the big actions count. Fridays for Q Features definitely count because it gives young people a voice. It gives them the courage to do something, to be active, but it has to start at home. Mm -hmm. And that's more difficult because we're used to being spoiled and yeah. pampered 
and having it easy and we have a beautiful comfort zone at home that whole zone at, zone at home but you must remember am i not exploiting somebody at home as you would the environment out there mm. i think it's very interesting what you're saying and i think it always has to be a two-way movement mm. because for many people for example talking about climate change and mm. sustainability um, many sustainable options are not available Mm. Um, because, for example, they are more expensive or something yeah. like that. Yeah. And so I feel like there has to be this two-way movement yeah. that we also go onto the streets and demand that these more sustainable options become accessible to yes, us. Yes. So yeah. our everyday decisions, yeah. um, sustainable it, everyday decisions can be made easier. And yeah. these, conversa in these conversations, if you have them at home, just as it's expensive for you, it's expensive for your parents who yeah, buy that's them. True. So the parents can go out with you mm -hmm. because actually if you can convince them and say, hey mom, look at this beautiful sweater that I'm wearing. We're paying, if I want to have one that is sustainable and, and uh, environmentally, uh, what do you call it, and respects the environment and conserves the environment, it's going to cost twice as much and you're the one paying for it. What shall we do about it? Because I think this dialogue has to happen between the generations in order, and that's why yeah, we definitely. are talking. In mm -hmm. order for us to really have an impact, we need to work together. We cannot work separately. We cannot be angry at each other because, like I said, your movements are not new. They were happening before. Our generation was angry with our parents, and we did our own demonstrating, and everybody, and this keeps repeating itself. Mm -hmm. And the family just sitting there watching and saying, hmm. Sometimes there'll be no human beings. We'll go back to just having ice age and whatever, water age and, you know, fire age. And the planet just waits and breathes quietly and says, okay, let them get on with it. Because the planet doesn't care. It's us who have to breathe clean air. It's mm. us who have to eat food that is healthy from a healthy, from healthy, um, from an healthy, healthy ground. We have to drink clean water that is healthy. It's all about us. That is definitely the case, and we need to stick together on this. And that's, for me, what I try to tell young people is, don't go off on your own. See if your parents will go with you, you know, and see if you can find solutions together. Many parents and grandparents actually also are part of Fridays for Future, yeah. especially here in Hamburg. We also have parents for future and grandparents yeah. for future. Yeah. So when we have the big strikes, there's always yeah. like parents with their little yeah. children, also grandparents on the street, which I think is very beautiful. And then the next thing that has to happen is they have to vote right mm -hmm. because going on the streets alone is not enough. And yeah. that's why I say civic education is so important. Understand how your government works. Understand the influence of, of industry on how governments decide. It's, it's really doing your homework. It's a lot more than the, the, what is seen in front, the picture of the street. And there are a lot of experts who are also supporting you all who can give you the right material and give you the information that you need mm -hmm. in order to make the right decisions around how life is 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 how life is uh, created and how life continues in your environment and in the areas that you you are and you live for some it's easier than for others mm -hmm. you know some countries have it more difficult because you know there's less openness to this kind of freedom of movement in terms of you know being democratic and saying your opinion but at the bottom of it all is working together or should be um so these processes can be long and frustrating what is one thing that keeps you motivated in striving towards change? I think what keeps me motiv motivated in striving towards change is like now, for example, with you, talking to you, with your 17 years, mm -hmm. hopeful, active, you know, interested, caring. This is what keeps me going because I know that it is my responsibility to continue because you all are there. Why would I give up when you're not giving up? Why would I give up when I can support and enable 
and create platforms that enable you to have your voice. That's what I do. That's what Sautiku does. We create platforms. We create spaces where young people can have their voice, use their voice, be active. We demand it of them. We push you in that direction and say, come on, get on with it. Mm-hmm. Be active, participate. Don't let people, don't be a passive participant. You know, don't, let, don't be a victim, actually. A passive participant is a victim. Don't be a victim. You can determine your destiny. Be responsible. Be part of the process. Be part of the decision-making process that enables you to have the kind of life that you want to live responsibly, but also, uh, you know, respecting and also considering others. Um, you once described yourself with the following words. Human, woman, African, Kenyan, a woman with the famous surname Obama, and also a bridge between cultures. What do you mean by that? <laughs> I think I'll start with the first one, human. I see myself as first and foremost a human being. Uh, I don't see myself as a feminist because I see myself as a human. Because I always say that before I'm a, I'm a woman, before I'm an African, I'm a woman. I, I'm, so I'm a human. And being a human just means that I'm on this earth like any other human and try to make my way through this life mm-hmm. like any other human. If I am able to confront people as a human being be it a man woman a white person a black person then we're equal mm-hmm. there's no discussion around oh gender equity or equality you know there's no discussion because we're humans so we measure ourselves against each other as humans and that is for me the most important thing i am then proud to be a woman because i love being a woman i will promote women because i feel that society is not accepting of women in a way that allows us to just be humans so we need to work towards making sure that happens mm-hmm. i'm an african as well because that is where i come from that is my identity also proud of the fact but it doesn't define me alone i'm more than that so it's very important for me to be proud of it to uphold it to support it to promote it but it doesn't define me alone it's it's what makes me more interesting it enriches my identity You see, and on top of that, all I'm a mother as well because that's also because these are all points of discrimination, except for the first being a human. All the others are points of discrimination. You can be discriminated on the basis of being black, being a woman, being a mother, but you can't be discriminated on the basis of being a human because you're just a human. No human will discriminate against another human because you're just a human. If we both see ourselves as human, we won't discriminate. So that's why for me it's very important that the definitions of me all boil into the one that I'm a human. Um. When you look into the future, also, for example, considering discrimination, but also many other challenges that we are currently facing, are you hopeful? I'm more than hopeful, because hopeful to me stops at kind of, it's to me, being hopeful is a little bit passive, mm-hmm. because you can be hopeful, but you can sit there and hope. It's kind of, to me, it's a little bit of a bus stop scenario. You're hoping the bus shows up nine. Sorry, no, the bus has to show up. It's on the time to it's coming at 8.40 and 8.40 it will be there. I'm not hopeful. I know it can be better. I know we can live differently. I know we, I know there are solutions that, it can, that can improve the lives of us as human beings, that can ensure that our young people have a better future. We all know it. It's just we don't do it because we want to make money, because we are comfortable, because we are afraid. There are solutions. That's how I go through life. I know for everything there's a solution. You have to compromise sometimes. You have to have less. You can't be greedy. You can't just want to consume. You can't always be in first place. But there's always a way out. You can negotiate spaces to find solutions. And that's what I believe in. And that's why for me, I don't live in hope. I live, I live in being actively 
being an active participant in making change happen. That's mm -hmm. how I live. Yeah. Um, is there another question you would like to be asked or do you have a question for me? Do you have anything that you'd like to say to what I've just said with regards to the whole interview? Um, yes, I think one point struck me as particularly interesting. Um, you talked a few times about how the generations have to work together, so it's not the young people against the old. Um, and I very much the agree older. with you. <laughs> not the old, the yes, older. yes. Um, I think, especially when it comes to, for example, climate change, um, there's often this impression that the young people are working against the older generations. Um, and that we are kind of pointing our finger at them and saying that they've destroyed our planet and yeah. now they have to pay for it or something like that. Um, and I think that is actually very sad because it um, takes away many opportunities from us to work together and mm -hmm. to, um, yeah, kind of working together create meaningful yeah. change. Mm -hmm. um, and know, yeah, you know, <laughs> the thing is also when you think about that, it's really critical because, for example, you'll find that a young person is really mad, you know, mm -hmm. because oh, the older people have ruined our lives, our future, etc. And we want to save the planet, we want to do all these things. But it's really ironical because you'll find that same young person, person is going to a demonstration, oh, mom, can you drive me there? That same mm -hmm. car, which is, you know, probably ruining the environment, is the one that that young person gets into and goes to the demonstration. And, oh, mom, it's raining, can you pick me up? So at the same time, mom, you're ruining our environment. You're, so it's really, we really need to get very honest about what yes. we want to do and get down to basics and work together. We are all afraid for our planet. We all have to live on this planet. So it's not you guys against us. It's all of us together. And it's really, really critical, I think. And many times you need us. You, you, you're all very young. In fact, it's your right, again, talking about children's rights. We can't let you loose on your own, you know, because we have that experience and we've gone through it all. We've demonstrated as well for different reasons, for different things. I mean, we women, we, why are we here? Because women before us have fought the fight for women to have equitable opportunities. So, yeah, I think it's good that you're thinking about it and I hope you take that message to your friends. Do you discuss it with young people about the generation gap, if um, I can call it that. Yeah, yeah um, definitely. I think it's one of the like, kind of biggest topics when we talk about kind of this generational conflict almost. Um, and also in connection with youth participation, because often I feel um, as a young person that youth participation is really meaningful, that it's kind of mm -hmm. superficial and that um, youth are being invited to, for example, conferences and they give us the platform to speak for a few minutes and then we go home again. We don't mm. really have a meaningful impact. Mm. And I think that is something that is very sad because um, as we can benefit from the yeah. knowledge and experience from older generations, they can also benefit from our perspective, yeah. which is why I think, and I agree with you, that we need to work together in order to mm. create. Uh, create meaningful change. Yeah, that's true. And actually, that is a, a problem. Inviting youth to an event, having them speak for a second, and then they're gone. Mm -hmm. And that must be extremely frustrating. And then one must really maybe even be brave enough to say, no, I'm not coming. We're going to have our own event, and we're going to invite you. Why don't you do that? You have your own event, and then invite us, and then send us home. <laughs> That'll be the way to go, you know? 
We'll try that next time at the World Future Council. Next okay? time you want to try that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Super. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed this inspiring conversation and will tune in again for more next time. This podcast is brought to you by the World Future Council, a foundation that identifies, develops, highlights and disseminates future just solutions for the current challenges that humanity is facing. To support our work, find us at www.worldfuturecouncil.org as well as on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook and, of course, in our next episode. 